Today's reading is from John 1, 1 through 18. Please follow along as I read the passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He has seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we all have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has been made known. This is God's word. Thanks, Justin. Morning, everyone. How are you? Great. It's funny when you don't expect things. Um, well, today we begin a new series um, in what is called Eastertide, which is a season on the church calendar uh, following Easter. Now, in the Western uh, Protestant church, uh, we do a good job on the buildup. We typically build up to things really well. We build up to Advent really well. We spend weeks getting up to Advent. We spend weeks building up to Easter. Uh, we call it Lent. Um, but we're not really good with the follow-through. So we party on uh, Christmas, and then we're just depressed the rest of the year. And then Easter happens, and then uh, we just go about our spring. Um, that's kind of it in the, in the Western, kind of the Western church has this proclivity to do that. Um, but we have this tradition, a beautiful historic tradition, that not only longs for Advent and the buildup for Advent, and not only prepares uh, for Easter through Lent, but also afterwards celebrates. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, has famously said that if you fasted or if you fasted 40 days for Lent, anyone do that? We must party 40 days after Easter. <laughs> he said that. He said champagne every morning with breakfast, flowers, incense, and great meals. This is why we have flowers again and incense again. We're, we're in Eastertide. That's why we have these, these uh, backdrops still up. It's Eastertide. We're, we're continuing this celebration. I, I really love this. And so that's what we have going on today. We have communion. Um, I wish it was champagne, but it's uh, regular old wine today. But we're, we're celebrating. And today we're kind of launching in to, um, in this idea of Eastertide, a, a new CG practice that's coming next week on vocation. Now, let me try to, try to tie all these things together. I want to look at the topic of vocation differently because of Easter. Eastertide, though your vocation, I don't want to talk about it through the lens of your job or what you do with most of your days or what you think your calling is in life. Those things are so important, and some of those things you'll, you'll get into in your CGs. Um, but I want to zoom out a lot more because what the resurrection does, as we learned a couple weeks ago on Easter, is the beginning of new creation. That's what the flowers are for. They, they, they symbolize new creation. And new creation means God, through Jesus, has restored us to new humanity. Therefore, our original vocation as human beings made in the image of God, or said differently, made to image God, is restored because of the resurrection. Are you, with, are you following me? So we, we once had an original vocation to image God to the world, 
And that was marred because of sin. And then resurrection means it's all possible again. And so we have God's spirit. This is, this is a lot of theology for, I haven't even prayed yet. So this is like a lot of theology before this happens. And then now we're restored to our true vocation. Okay. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what it looks like to live in our and out of our true vocation as, as humans, imaging God to the world. Our true vocation as being human, being restored, um, I want to look at that through what is classically called the transcendentals. This doesn't have to do with ayahuasca or anything like that. This is, this is something way, I mean, there's probably a, um, a horrible version of that in that stuff, but this is something way, way, uh, probably deeper than that. So classically called transcendentals, and the transcendentals are this. They are uh, the true and the good and the beautiful. And, I, and if, if, uh, if that doesn't make that much sense to you, my hope is that at the end of the next several weeks, it will. And more than that, it would all, we would all point our lives towards these transcendentals as our genuine vocation. So a little um, warning today. I, I was told after first service to warn you of this, like, I want everyone to listen. This is a lecture today. This will feel like a lecture. So in the middle of today's thing, if it's your first time at church, you're like expecting to hear like a sermon or whatever, we usually give those, today will be very lectury. So, and we'll be talking about philosophy. And so I'm not a philosopher. I play one on Sundays sometimes. Um, though in another life, I wish I was a philosopher. But today will feel like a lecture today because I want to get to this. And I want to get to this. This is the intro. I want to get to this over the next four weeks. This is really important. This intro is really important. Lays the groundwork for everything. So it will feel like a lecture today. Um, and I will end today with just questions. I think what will happen today will just leave us with a lot of questions that I want to ask. And then we'll move into the rest of our series over the next four weeks. They build on each other. They're not necessarily standalone. So before we get into today's teaching or lecture, whatever you want to call it, um, let, me, let me pray. I need God's help. Let me pray. Lord, I, I, I really do need your help. I pray you fill me with your spirit. Gosh, I love the smell of incense in a church. It reminds me that we've prayed. We, the, the prayers are the, like, on the incense of your people. Like They go up to you and they smell like this to you. They, they smell beautiful to you. And so this prayer, I join with the people that have, have prayed in the sanctuary and prayed before and have prayed for today, that we would come to know Jesus, that we would encounter you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. What makes something truly good and just? What makes something truly good and just? Is something good because God said it is good? So there's like this arbitrary nature to good? Or is something good because it is fundamentally good and God recognizes it as good because it is good? Or said differently, is something good and just because God, because God wills it? Or does God will it because it is good and just? Now, if you think you're back in philosophy 101 and you recognize this as Plato's dilemma and his conversation with Euthyphro, all of your money is paid off because this is exactly what it is. The way Plato phrased it is, um, or the way it's phrased in this dilemma is, is what is good loved by God because it is good? Or is it good because it is loved by God? Now, if you went to community college like me, let me try to catch you up a little bit on what's happening here. It's like this, like, is killing puppies bad in this universe because God says it's bad? Like arbitrarily says, you know, in this universe, killing puppies is bad, but in some other universe, God could say it's fine because in that universe, God declares it to be arbitrarily good. Or does there exist some standard of good that God himself has to adhere to? That's the puzzle. Now, let's say you don't believe in God. Let's say you're here this morning and you don't really believe in God or the gods or anything metaphysical that gives laws or of morality to humans and humans are here because we're here. We're just here because we're here. And let's not think too much more about it like that. It's just, we're here because we're here. Well, same question. What makes something good? Is it good because your culture declares it to be good and just? Or is it self-evident that something is good and just? 
And not to adhere to this self-evidence would be inhumane. And if it is self-evident, where does this obvious thing come from? Now, of course, we're right in the center of everything from culture wars to identity politics here. But the question remains, what makes something good and just? Now, let me come at this from another angle. Actually, through another philosopher, this philosopher's name is Peter Kreft from Boston College. He says, every natural, innate desire in us as humans corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. I say innate because there are externally conditioned desires we have, like electric cars and promotions at work that are not, they're kind of made up, right? But we have innately, naturally as humans, desires for things like food and drink and sex and sleep and knowledge and friendship and beauty, and we naturally shun things like starvation Loneliness, ignorance, and ugliness. Here's the second premise. There exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, or no creature can truly satisfy. Now, the second premise will, will, will actually make you be honest in answering it. You have to be honest in answering it. Because you can say, if we were kind of like debating or whatever, you can say that you are perfectly happy making $400,000 a year, three-bedroom, having a three-bedroom house and a garage in San Francisco. You can say, no, that, that makes me perfectly happy and there's nothing else I want in life whatsoever. Or maybe you're saying, I just want that and I want, will want nothing else in life whatsoever. But no one would believe you and I bet you, don't, you wouldn't even believe yourself. The universal testimony of every human in history <clears throat> And all its great literature and philosophy says that there are human desires in us that are never satisfied. Now, the conclusion to the argument is there exists in the world an unknown X. We don't know this X, but we know the direction of this X. The direction of this X is more. We want more. That's what this premise exposes, is that we want more. We want to push beyond. We have unsatiable appetites in us that cannot be satisfied. Another philosopher, C.S. Lewis, puts it succinctly when he says this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such thing as water. We feel sexual desire, well, there's such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, I begin this morning with Plato's dilemma and Peter Kreft's argument from desire for a reason because they both point to this idea of transcendence. That most everything in this life of what we see and what we desire point beyond themselves into something transcendent. That is what I wanna point out today and what I wanna talk about the next four weeks. That what we desire, the things that we desire, actually point beyond themselves to something transcendent. And what I want to try to show you today is that you can't get away from this. No matter how much we try to live in a materialistic world where, where everything is explained, materialism explains everything, science explains everything, no matter how much our Western culture tries to remove ourselves from transcendence, we are all haunted by the sense of transcendence. And the question I want to place before you right at the beginning is this. Are we haunted because we are still too close to the time when we used to believe in ghosts? Or are we haunted because there is actually a ghost there? Now, I want you to hold on to that question. We'll come back to it at the end. Let's talk about transcendence for just a minute. And we'll start with Greek thought here. In Greek thought, shaped by Plato and Aristotle, 
the reference point to the entire, of the entire cosmos was God. Now, of course, this isn't Yahweh God of the Hebrews. Obviously, they had different names for God, namely Zeus and other gods. <clears throat> but ultimate reality was found, they believed, in God's being, God's essence. So truth, goodness, and beauty, the three transcendentals, are parts of one comprehensive reality, which is to be grasped by human intellect and to which all our desires are truly pointed. Meaning, there are three things that will never die in us, three desires that we have that will never die until we die, we think. And they are the desire for truth, the desire for goodness, and the desire for beauty. We all need these three things. We know we need them, and we need them absolutely. Our minds not only want to know some truth and some falsehood, but we want to know all truth without limit. The human mind can never know enough. You will never come to the point where you're like, I know enough. I don't, I don't need to know anything else about anything else. I, my mind knows enough. You will never be satisfied. Your knowledge will never be satisfied. You will always want to know more. Our wills not only want some good and some evil, but all good without limit. We want everything to be good. Our desire, our imaginations, our feeling, our hurts want not just some beauty and some ugliness. We want all beauty without limit. We as creatures desire the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, in the Greek mind, and also the Hebraic mind, these all flowed, all of these things, truth, goodness, and beauty, all flowed from God's being. And the reference point to them was God, meaning at the center, in Greek thought, at the center of ultimate reality was truth, goodness, and beauty. And therefore, to live in harmony with said ultimate reality you had to give your whole life and your whole self to the pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty because you believed at the center of ultimate reality was good, truth, and beauty. And so you would give your life. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago in our series on the Bible, if you remember this, that the Greeks had this idea of uh, pedia, which is like training. Training in righteousness, this is what, um, uh, what Paul says. This is what we talked about. Training in righteousness, that the, that the, that the person of God would be um, complete. Now, this idea, pedia, training, is a Greek idea, and it meant the shaping of the body, the mind, and the will, where every like, Greek child would enter into this school, but it, didn't, it trained the whole person, the whole person, the body, the mind, the will, towards good, beautiful, and true. It was a shaping of everything. Now, Plato has this very famous allegory of the cave, and you might have heard it, but I'll repeat it to you because I think it's important. In this allegory, in this story, Plato describes people who live their entire lives in, within a cave, uh, staring at an interior wall of the cave. So this, they all live there and they're all looking at this cave wall, okay? Behind them is the outside where there exists the sun and the assortment of real things, you trees and mountains and rocks and so on and so forth. And the light of the sun shines into the cave and it creates shadows of the very real objects Outside, And so on the cave, there's um, a shadow of a tree and a rock and a mountain and a building or whatever. It's just like these, these, these shadows. Now, the people within the cave only know what they see on the wall, which is just a series of shadows from objects behind them. Now, they may spend their lives watching these shadows, having no idea of the real objects that have created these shadows. Plato describes the goal of the philosopher as the bringing of these viewers of shadows out of the cave and into the light. As they emerge, they begin to see reality as it actually is. In this story, the shadows are particular objects encountered in everyday experience. So the allegory is this. The shadows are like the, the stuff in our world, the real stuff in the world that, ha that are real. They're, they're not shadows, they're real. But the, the, they point to something more real. They point, you see, through them to something that, ha that is a greater reality. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, if you've read uh, the New Testament, this idea sounds familiar. It's because Paul says this exact same thing. 
The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, speaks to something like this as well. This is actually where we get the name of our church. Fun fact, this is where we get the name of our church. Colossians 2.17, it says this. Paul says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Same idea. Similar allegory. The shadows that Paul is talking about here are the Hebraic feasts, celebrations, and regulations. These were shadows. They were real things, but they pointed beyond themselves, and their reality is to be found in Christ. Now, what this means is that true knowledge comes through a contemplation of what is physical to an intellectual ascendance to what is eternal. So in Greek thought, you would meditate on, on the world, on knowledge, on wisdom. You would meditate on things um, that pointed, and you believe that they pointed beyond themselves, and you could ascend to know the mind of God. I would say, are you with me? But I hope that you are. And if you're not, we can't go back. So just be with me. <laughs> because if you're with me, for, for, the, for, for the Greeks... To see something was to see through something into a greater reality. And that's what they believed. Now, if you see that, now you're ready for John 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, this word for word is the word logos. Now, this word logos has really huge Jewish connotations. And for our purposes this morning, really, really huge Greek connotations. Luke Free, which I think I've recommended this book a hundred times to you. If you're just like trying to get into philosophy or just want like, I just want a cursory book on, a small, easy book to read on philosophy. He wrote a book called the, A Brief History of Thought. And in this book, he's, he's not um, a Christian. I think I would call him probably agnostic. He just doesn't know. Um, I mean, he doesn't really know. He's just like, I don't know. But as a philosopher, he has surveyed all the philosophy in history and as a part of philosophy of history, you have to talk about the way of Jesus because the philosophy of Jesus, the way of Jesus changed the world. So of course, as a philosopher, you have to deal with the philosophy of Jesus and the way of Jesus. So he does, and he deals very honestly with the way of Jesus and the philosophy of Jesus. And he says that what John says right here in John 1 changes the history of thought. In surveying through all philosophy, there is still nothing better as we face the world and face death than what John writes here about the Logos, he says. In Jewish thought, this had to do with God and creation and God with his word creating things from nothing. This is in the beginning, God said, God said through his word and by his spirit, when you speak, wind comes out of your mouth, spirit, that's the same word for spirit, ruach, Wind. So this is this idea of word is like this word made flesh was the word at the beginning. So the Hebraic mind, that was, that was the connection. But for the, for the Greek mind, John uses this word logos. Now logos for the Greeks was the impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos. So for Plato and later the Stoics, the Logos was also described as divine reason, which existed alongside of God. The Logos served as a kind of intermediary between the immaterial world of forms and the material objects of earthly existence. So for the Greeks, the Logos was um, the, the like, all of the, everything that we see in this world pointed to something of the way the universe was created. And these things were ideas. For Plato, they were ideas. Like there was a tree and then there's the idea of a perfect tree. And these trees point to this idea of a perfect tree. And this perfect tree was along, it was in the mind of God and the mind of God was called the logos. The logos is obviously where we get the word logic. Like it makes, it makes sense. The Greeks said the cosmos, the structure of the entire universe was divine. Why was it divine? Because it was perfect in its order. The cosmos was not just divine, but rational. It was true and good and therefore beautiful. The cosmos was orderly and beautiful. 
It's like where we get the word cosmetics. Cosmos. The cosmos had order and beauty to it. And so they would try to learn the cosmos because they believed that the cosmos was a way to know the divine, the divine order, the way the world is set up. And the marriage of these two thoughts of the logic of God and beauty and order in the world was called the logos. The logic, basically, is the logic of the universe. What Plato and others showed was that because of this logos, because this logic that ran through the world, we can have knowledge of things as they are because the forms, the, um, the, the things that are beyond, like in the mind of God or things that are next to God, those things are what everything points to. All the real stuff points to that, that stuff, that transcendent stuff. Therefore, we can come up with laws that govern the cosmos. We come up with things like the law of gravity and numbers, and that all makes sense. All of it has beautiful logic to it. If you've studied numbers, you're like, it's actually beautiful how all numbers, can they all fit together. When your checkbook balances, then it, then it makes, it's really fun and beautiful, but when it does, does. But like, numbers are beautiful to some people. Like the order of the cosmos is beautiful. And this is what, how, how the Greeks thought. Now, but not only did, okay, this is where, this where it gets kind of hard for us, because we might be, we might be there, we're like, yeah, the universe is beautiful. It's, it's amazing, it has order and beauty, and we, we know science and laws, we can do all this stuff because it's observable and it's repeatable and all these things, like the, the, science, the scientific method, like all of it's beautiful. But what the Greeks believed was that because it was beautiful, and because it was good, and because it was true, there was a moral obligation to it. Because truth is only true if it's good, and something is good if it's beautiful, and it all works in reverse as well. Something is beautiful if it is good, and if it's good, and it's good if it's true, and all things good, beautiful, and true have their ontology in God. Therefore, we are placed within a world of order and unity, and we are here to discover what that is. The world makes sense, and at the center of this world, it leads to the divine mind. We do not create what is real or true. We are pilgrims on this earth. We uncovered the fundamental ideas which underline creation, and in doing so, we come to know the mind of God. This is Greek classical thought. And all of this is the idea of logos. Now what John says here in John 1 is that the logos became flesh and lived among us. Now think about that for a second. This logos, divine logic, became flesh. In Greek thought, you ascended to God through ideas. You ascended to God through knowledge of the cosmos. That's how you got to God. Like you would understand the world and then you would ascend your way to God through understanding, through wisdom, through philosophy, a love for wisdom, a love for knowledge of how things work together, how the human psyche works together, how it all works together, that you would ascend to it. However, what John is saying here is that there was a descent of the transcendent God in the incarnation of the Son of Jesus. We don't ascend to it, it descends down to us. And this is why you have Paul saying to the Greeks, the cross is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to them. A logos, like if, you, if, if a Greek was reading John 1, they would be with you until you said, and then this word, this logos became flesh. They'd be like, well, time out. Nope, that's not it. And then dwelt among us. And then if you get to the end of John and then goes to a cross, like this is foolishness. This is what Paul is saying, or sorry, John is saying, is that there's this descent. And ta John takes this word logos and says that this divine and personal force that holds the structure of the cosmos together has become flesh. And we can know truth, goodness, beauty, not ideas, but as a person. These are not ideas to John. This is a person. Now back to Plato's dilemma. So what's the answer? Is something good and just because God wills it or, is it, or does God will it because it's good and just? What's the answer to this puzzle? The answer with, within Christianity and the answer that Christianity puts forth is actually a relational answer. 
It is God who is truth and goodness and justice and beauty. Therefore, all those things are who he is and they have their place in him. He doesn't decree them as much as they emanate from his person. So they're actually real because they're God. So the good in the world is not good because God says they're good. It's because it's, it emanates from him who is the source of all good. It's true, not because God said this is going to be true, because it emanates from him and he is truth. It's beautiful, not because, you know, beauty is an eye beholder and God says, oh, that's going to be beautiful, but because it emanates from God and God himself is beauty. And all of this took on the form of flesh in Jesus. And the answer then is relational. You can have a relationship with the true, the good, and the beautiful. So to know them is to know God, which is why we speak of vocation when we speak of truth, goodness, and beauty. And this is why we're doing this series, Vocation Through This, is because as we get to know truth, goodness, and beauty, we then become like the one whom in, in whom we believe. And we ourselves become a people of truth and goodness and beauty and give our entire lives to the pursuit of truth and goodness and beauty. And I think, and we'll specifically look at this series through the lens of beauty, because I think beauty is the apologetic that could save the world. Because I think what happens in our, and especially Protestant over the last, um, I don't know, 50, 60 years is that we have removed this idea of aesthetics from the Christian faith. We have believed this, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll just do it anyway, because it's fun. We have believed in this flattened world that we are all materialists and nothing has meaning beyond what we see. And we've believed in that. So we've made everything functional. We've made things to where there is no transcendence, where you don't walk into a place and feel like there's something pulling you beyond itself. There's nothing that arouses your, your senses, like your smell or your eyes or well, your ears. We do that. We do that fairly well with music. But kind of everything else we don't do. Because we think that this is just, just, just wood. Just wood. This is just a, a building. All that matters is your soul. Your body counts for nothing. Well, that's where Christianity and Platonism kind of diverge where the body is something because goodness, truth, and beauty took on body. I died on the cross and then resurrected in body. So this world matters, not just because this world matters, but because it's transcendent. It points to something else that is ultimate reality, and that is Jesus. Okay, so now you may be thinking, okay, cool history lesson, bro. That was fun. I, w I mean, I wasn't really expecting that on a Sunday. Well, really fun. And that was like um, a decent piecemeal together philosophy lesson. But no one believes that stuff anymore. No one believes that there are gods behind the weather and stars and that trees point to the divine. We don't call it a cosmos anymore. We call it a universe. Why? Because cosmos has this idea of order and beauty behind it. Order and beauty, like, like I said, cosmetics, order and beauty. And the universe has a reference point with us and what we know. So we don't say cosmos anymore because that denotes order and beauty. No, no, just universe. What is universe? It's just what we know about the world what we know about the universe, what we, our reference point is us and what we know about it. That out there is the universe and what we know about it. The reference point is us. We decide what truth is now because we're the reference point. There's no absolute truth. We decide what truth is and it typically is what science says it is. That is unless we don't feel the science is right then we don't, we don't side with science or biology or anything like that. And truth is divorced from goodness. You can't put truth and goodness together. That's not how it works. Good is what is good for me as long as I don't harm anyone. It's not attached to truth. And beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, and this has massive implications on how we live and see the world, not least of which is mystery. Mystery. 
we don't know what to do with mystery. And I'm speaking to the church here, mainly. Out in the world, yeah, absolutely, but especially in the church, I'm speaking especially to us fundamentalists within our world that don't have any tolerance for mystery. If we can't understand something, we think there's something wrong with the whole system or the Bible or God. And this is the heart of deconstructionism. I'm not talking about in the church deconstruction. I'm talking about as a philosophy deconstructionism. We tear apart everything that is mysterious to us and we take it all down because it doesn't make sense to us because we are the reference point. And if it doesn't make sense to us, it's not a thing. Because we have no tolerance for mystery, we don't know what to do with our feelings of transcendence. So now I'm gonna go full circle. We don't know what to do with our feelings of transcendence. We just don't know what to do with them. We don't know what to do with this haunting feeling that this, this is not all there is. We don't know what to do with this feeling. Our atheistic friends don't know what to do with this feeling. Some of you in here who proclaim to be Christians don't know what to do with this feeling. What do I do with this feeling of transcendence? This haunting feeling that this is not all there is. Now, there are different responses to this. Some, and actually a lot of people, are returning back to Stoicism, led by people like Ryan Holiday and others. Like a return to Sto- Let's just return to this, this, this Stoic philosophy. It seemed to work then. Let's do it. Let's resurrect it. Others, like Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office, basically, was recently on a podcast I was listening to, and he was talking, he was going off. He was talking about how we are all spiritual beings. And it's important to have a spirituality because he says it is reality. Spirituality is reality, he says. He said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, but spiritual beings having a human experience. Which is not really true, but it's a good start. (laughs) And how we're part of something much greater and more beautiful than ourselves. And then he said this, and I was kind of tripping when he said this. He said, and that losing, losing oneself into a transcendent self is the point. And it's proven to enrich your life, he said. And he, then he fell back on science because you kind of have to. It's proven through studies that it's good for your life. And I think this was a start. For sure, this is a start. But it's my belief that though the word is not in our vernacular anymore, this idea of logos is still with us. It haunts us. Now, we call it different things. We call it universal oneness, divine spark, balance. It's what we meditate to get into, what we do yoga to try to align ourselves with, is what people are microdosing um, hallucinogenics to get into. See, the very fact that there is a thing that a lot of people among us try to get in tune with that we could become one with ourselves or with each other or decency or order or with the earth or whatever. The very fact that there is a connection, whatever you want to call this connection, is this idea of logos, this logic that we're trying to connect to, this, this thing that's running underneath all the things. What is that thing that's running underneath all the things that we can't see, but we all know is there? And it haunts us, and we can't get away from it. And what I would like you to start to do, church, I would like you to start to pay attention because it's everywhere. We are all haunted by it. And I want you to pay attention to the ways that we try to answer it whether if you were here on Easter Sunday and I talked about um, everything, everywhere, all at once, you've had two weeks to watch it, so, spoiler. No, not, maybe, but not. Like, the answer to this malaise that's in, the, in this movie, that I said this is actually our cultural moment, this malaise that's in our world today, this is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls like our world, we live in a malaise. We live in this like, this like discomfort and uneasiness with like the world is the way it is, is that there is something transcendent, 
But what is it? In the movie, just like, be good to each other. Treat each other nicely. That was it. That was, I was like, that's just so thin. It's so thin. And what does it even mean? What does it even mean? I've, I've taken countless, like, not countless, I can probably count them, yoga classes, like spin classes, like these classes that you're like, they're trying to tap you into something and you're like, well, what is that something? Like, goodness. You're like, what does that mean? What does that even mean? It's there. And I want you to pay attention. You're not allowed to just watch movies anymore. You have to see through movies. I'm not joking. You have to see through them. You're not allowed to listen to music anymore. You have to listen through music. See, if you try to look at your eyes, you will go cross-eyed and lose focus. You see through your eyes. That's the point. The whole point of the transcendentals is to see through them to behold God. So you don't look at truth for truth's sake or goodness for goodness sake or beauty for beauty's sake. You look through them. And I want you to start doing this because I think we're all asking these questions and we have lost the reference point. We don't have a, our reference point is is us. And so the best thing we can do is triangulation. That's it. We have lost the reference point to the transcendence. And because we have, we are, we are lost. And like I said, in Charles Taylor's word, we live with a kind of malaise. And I think this is most vividly seen in music. <clears throat> with music, music creates a feeling of transcendence, creates this feeling of like, there's something there, but without the object being there without the thing that it's pointing to being there. Music moves us strongly because music is moved. It captures, expresses, incarnates being profoundly moved, but by what? What is it moved by? By the way, these are Charles Taylor's thoughts on like modern music that have no reference point. What is music and the feeling of music draws towards? What's the object? Is there an object? He says, nevertheless, we can't quite shake our feeling that there must be an object. And so Taylor suggests, even this disembedded art that is disembedded from the transcendental trades on resonances of the cosmic in us. Transcendent music and art are for those who can't tolerate such ruthless flattering of instrumental reason. We have this idea that everything is, we live in a world where everything is flattened and everything's are what they are, but we know that's not true. And so we use things like music to, tra- to transcend those things. But where does it leave us? Where does it leave us? Which brings me to Bon Iver's masterpiece, 22 Million. And this is why there's a record player set up. Um, have you heard this record before? Listen through music, not at, at music. Listen through it. This is, one, this is a masterpiece record. <clears throat> and I want this, there, there's so much meaning, there's so much haunting in this record. And I'm gonna play for you a part of a song now off, off the record. This is the, the final song in the record, and everything has balance and meaning and numbers and numbers actually co- correspond with uh, logic and logos. And it's, real, it's crazy what Greeks have done with numbers and what he did with numbers and 10 and what, anyway, I can't get into that. But so, track 10. And I, here's what I want you, to, the lyrics are gonna be on the screen. I want you to listen through it. I want you to, if you don't know how to do this, I want you to feel the transcendence, the angst, the existential like, burden in the music. And then I want you to read through the lyrics. Don't try to make everything make sense one for one. Make them like the way you feel. Sometimes the way you feel is not one for one. You feel through them into something else. So do that with these, with these lyrics. Here it is. Oh, 
I can't tell you how many times I cried during that song. And I thought it was just me until last night I got on YouTube and read YouTube comments. And I, it was not just me. Like, so, you just, if you want to know, like, the, the thing that this song pulls out of people, just go read those comments. Like, people saying things like, I wish church was like this. Why can't church be like this? Like, this... This pulled me out of something so deep and dark in my life. This pulls out of me something that I didn't know. It was all of these, all of these things. Now, when uh, Justin Vernon, who's singing, first introduced this, this song, it was at the um, Eau Claire um, Festival in the UK. And th again, this is track 10. So he plays the, the album from beginning to end. I've been to that show. It's amazing. And this is track 10. And what he did when he first introduced this song to the world, this is the first time I ever played it, he passed out hymnals with the lyrics on them and had everybody sing along with him. And it was just him and a piano and a backup singer singing this song with everyone having hymnals to sing along. Why? Because we're all haunted by the logos, all of us. We're still haunted by it. This transcendent thing that happens to every single one of us, where, where is it? Now we can borrow from spiritual things, we can borrow from our past, but maybe we can see these things in what Charles Taylor calls the solicitations of the spiritual. See, the thing with logos is not only is it divine logic, it's also word. Word means it, it speaks. It can call you. It can solicit you. It can show up in your life out of nowhere and really mess up your life. And that's sometimes the point. And this is the good news about Logos. It's not just logic, but it's words. And words can speak. It can call you. It can speak to you. It can communicate because this logic, this word, is a person. So let's end with questions. Does this sound like something you've ever felt? This like, there has to be something beyond this. There has to be some transcendence. The other question would be, what would it look like to surrender to this? To accept it? There, there's a part in that song where he says in the chorus, and he, he keeps repeating this refrain, but he does it in different ways. He says, um, and it will harm me, it will harm me, It'll harm me, I'll let it in. There's this idea that there's this, there's this like acceptance of, of not just life, but there's acceptance to the mystery. What does it look like for you to surrender to this, to accept it, to accept this transcendence in your life, to move from seeking to finding? Because seeking, you know, you, you, can, you have control when you're seeking, but when you're finding, you have to kind of give up control. When you find, you have to, get, you, you have to then reckon with what you found. What would it look like? Another question is, what would it look like to allow space for mystery? Maybe you've set up your faith where everything has to make sense in every season of your life or none of it's true. What would it look like to embrace mystery? What would it look like to move from a universe where you're the center and it's just what you observe to a cosmos, to a beautifully, divinely ordered world 
that you are invited into because of the logos. Would you stand with me as we pray? I ask you to open your hands if you're willing, just open them up. And this posture of like um, giving, receiving, openness. God, as we've uh, closed with uh, questions, as we've been on, uh, it seems like a, a crazy journey, but here we are. And I really think that this, our culture is starving for something beyond what enlightenment has given us. Our culture's starving beyond something that our postmodern deconstructionist philosophy has given us, that none of it has meaning. There's something out there, but it doesn't mean anything. I think this is told over and over again in our books and in our movies and in our music and in our therapy sessions. It's told over and over and over again. And we can't unsee the universe or we can't unsee the fact that we are kind of at the center of the world and, and we see out. We can't unsee that, we see it. But Lord, I pray that, I ask now that we would just begin to invite in this idea of ordered beauty that is truth incarnate and that you would call to us